1: Erlon, I will never forget it.
0: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
0: From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Georgia House Speaker David Roston is supporting legislation to improve mental health services.
2: There is no issue this session more important to me than this issue. I'll
0: speak with Judy Fitzgerald from the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities about the reforms. And she'll share insight as to how accessing services the last two years has been challenging for so many Georgians. Plus, the American Red Cross is facing a shortage of blood donations. Dr. Baya Lasky from the American Red Cross of Georgia shares how the organization is coping. Also, the city of Atlanta's guaranteed income program is set to begin. Nancy Flake Johnson, president and CEO of the Urban League of Great Atlanta, has the details. These are important community conversations you need to know. But first, this. Georgia Democratic U.S. Senator John Ossoff says he has been in touch with leaders from the state's historically black colleges and universities. This after bomb threats were made against HBCUs around the country this week. Senator Ossoff spoke, reporter, spoke with reporters earlier today.
2: In the last 48 hours, I've communicated with the president of uh, every HBCU in Georgia, as well as the leadership of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, Uh, and I will be um, collaborating with the Justice Department to ensure that there's full federal support of the ongoing investigation of these terrorist threats against historically black colleges and universities.
0: Now, multiple outlets report the FBI plans to work with local law enforcement agencies to address these threats. Spelman College here in Atlanta has received multiple threats in the last month. Albany State University in southwest Georgia, as well as Fort Valley State, also have been targeted. And of course, more than a half dozen HBCUs across the country in recent weeks. In other news, Republicans in the General Assembly are moving ahead with a bill that would allow Georgians to carry a handgun without a permit. Supporters call this constitutional carry. A Senate committee advanced the legislation yesterday. WABE Sam Greenglass has more.
2: Right now, you don't need a permit to carry a long gun in Georgia, but you do to carry a handgun. That requires applying at a probate court, fingerprints, a background check, and a fee. Senate Bill 319 would make those permits optional. Here's Senator Blake Tillery questioning fellow Republican Senator Jason Anavitarte, who introduced the bill. Do the folks who break the law care if we have a law that says they need a gun permit? Most lawless people and I know from growing up hanging around some pretty bad element and those individuals don't care about, about laws or, or anything. So is it your premise then that the folks who are burdened by this process are actually those who are obeying the law? Correct. If the bill passes, background checks would still be conducted when a gun is purchased at a store. But background checks aren't currently required when guns are bought in a private sale, for example. So without a permit process, Democratic Senator Elena Parent says some gun owners would never undergo a background check.
3: Are you aware that in 2020, at least 5,000 people were denied? weapons carry licenses, and the number one reason for the denial
2: is criminal history? It probably would make sense if we're doing background checks and there are going to be people who are going to probably be denied a license.
3: So your bill would eliminate that, so why would we want to make it easier for these criminals to, to to carry a gun in public?
2: 21 states already allow permitless carry. Governor Brian Kemp says he wants Georgia to join that list, so some version of this bill is likely to become law this session. Sam Greenglass, WABE News.
0: Well, some great news for rural areas in terms of faster and dependable broadband internet. More than 180,000 homes and businesses throughout Georgia could benefit. Governor Brian Kemp announced yesterday the state will allocate more than $400 million of federal COVID relief dollars to 49 projects in parts of 70, mostly rural, counties.
2: We feel like these projects will move very quickly.
0: Now that we've gotten the awards done, we've got to get the contracts done and just tie up, you know, dot all the I's and
2: cross all the T's. But I can tell you, these companies, they're ready to go. They're buying fiber. They're lining up the workforce. Some of them already have that.
0: Completion times for the projects range from six months to two years. While most projects are in rural Georgia, there are some in this region, including in Hall, Newton, and Walton counties. And finally... Uh it's Groundhog Day. <laughs> and whether we'll see a longer or shorter winter depends on which prognosticating rodent you trust. Now, in Georgia, General Beauregard Lee did not see his shadow. That's a prediction of an early spring. However, up in Pennsylvania, Punxsutawney Field, perhaps our nation's top furry critter meteorologist saw his shadow, predicting six more weeks of winter. Sam picked this song because he's a big fan of the movie Groundhog Day. My take? Personally, I defer to my knee. If my arthritis is not too bad on this day, we'll continue to have a mild winter and get ready for spring. I'm happy to report my knee feels pretty good today. And a note of disclosure, the National Weather Service in Peace Tree City does not endorse this forecast. This is Closer Look. And from WABE in Atlanta, of course, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. It cannot be said enough how much the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed and deepened existing inequities and disparities within health and wellness. We know this. That includes mental health, and especially when it comes to access and treatment. So many optics tied to grappling with COVID-19 have put a tremendous strain on the state agency, Charged with getting people access to treatment. That is the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities, or we call DBHDD. But the agency's commissioner is Judy Fitzgerald, and during state budget hearings last month, she shared with lawmakers that overdose deaths in Georgia increased. 36% from April of 2020 to April of 2021. She also said rural suicides increased 8% from 2019 to 2020. And last year saw a 24% increase in calls to the state's crisis helpline. Here's what she said.
3: You may be asking why, and there's lots more to be explored about why. What we know, isolation, stress, limited access, and the strain of the pandemic is having devastating consequences in our communities, our cities, and our families.
0: Now, backed by House Speaker David roston there's legislation to improve pathways for accessing mental health and accessing substance use disorder treatment. And of course, along with that is the familiar question, is this enough? Well, joining me now is Commissioner Fitzgerald. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
3: Oh, Rose! Thanks for the chance to be here.
0: Let's begin here. As you addressed state lawmakers during last month's budget hearings, what message did you really want to convey them? Convey to them to fully understand where we are right now in Georgia as it relates to mental health access and resources.
3: So it's such an important time in our state, um, as you referenced in uh, in that budget presentation and in several other public settings. I've had the opportunity to present national numbers uh, that have been widely reported about increase in substance use, increase anxiety and depression, and the toll that the pandemic has taken. And then we were able to translate these numbers into Georgia. What the exciting thing that's happening though, is this has opened up an unprecedented conversation Uh, I think, across every community and at the highest levels of elected office, right, for people to say mental health is an essential part of our overall health and well-being, and we can no longer ignore what it's going to take to improve access and quality of services. So it's a really, really important time for all of us to collaborate and come together around what's needed in our state.
0: And so it is accurate to say that the pandemic didn't did heighten all these inequities and disparities and sort of pull the cover back on the challenges that existed before we got into COVID-19. Yeah,
3: exactly. I mean, one of the figures that has been reported nationally in 2019, one in 10 Americans uh, experienced reported that they experienced anxiety or depression. And then in 2020, that number was up to one in four. That number is remarkable to me. Uh, And and again, those are national numbers. What I want to say, that 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 is a reflection of the experience we had here at DBHDD. Hmm. We heard from families. We heard from individuals. We heard from communities, providers, everyone. And certainly, that number of increased calls to our crisis and access line tells a story as well. People were seeking help, seeking hope, and really the uncertainty of the pandemic, I think really um, what was a big factor across every age group. Uh, hmm. And that's what the data reflects as well.
0: And commissioner, I'm curious because we, I coming into the segment and talked about just how broadband, faster broadband was going to be so important to rural communities. So when we talk about access to mental health services, did we see an even greater disparity in rural communities as opposed to urban areas in terms of folks being able to get at least some help if need be?
3: Yeah, so I I think um, rural communities certainly are always a concern. Let me tell you one really remarkable thing that happened during the pandemic, though. Uh, DBHDD contracts with over 700 providers around the state who are delivering services for people with mental illness, substance use disorders, and intellectual and developmental disabilities. I could not have predicted how rapidly that provider network was able to completely transform their ability to provide telehealth or telephonic services Mm -hmm. to folks who were sheltering in place, didn't know how to access a clinic. And so there was remarkable progress, but some of those challenges still continue. And I really wanna emphasize Rose, if I could, Mm -hmm. the most important one, because it's true in urban and in rural communities, and that's stigma. And when I use that word stigma, It's the fear and the shame that has often been associated both with mental illness and substance use disorders. And so you can have terrific uh, treatment services out there, but if people A, don't believe they have a problem, or B, are ashamed of it, or C, they have people around them that want to diminish that problem, they don't seek out the help. So Mm -hmm. one of the exciting things about the conversation we're having is Elected officials, community leaders are talking about it, and I think really uh, taking the cloak off of mental illness and saying, it's okay to say, I need help.
0: Absolutely. Let's run through uh, this mental health legislation that lawmakers are considering. First, we know it aims to expand the number of mental health providers in the state. Make sure mental health services are covered like physical health services are. And then better train first responders to deal with mental health issues. That's a lot. But through your lens, and I know as a, as a commissioner, you you can always want more. But is there what about this bill are you really, really excited about that maybe Georgia didn't have before?
3: Yeah, I think you already hit on it. Uh, and, and I love the language that you used. We call it parity. Right. And, and parity has been in law. Uh, but the question is Do people know what their insurance coverage is? And do they know that the law generally says a physical ailment has to be co- a, a mental health disorder has to be covered with equal at an equal level of a physical ailment? Mm. And so the, this bill and the conversation around the bill have completely lifted up the conversation around parity and said, Now, how can we make sure that that's happening? Invite people to report when it's not happening and really I think this is really what advances the notion that mental health is part of overall health and well-being, and you can't separate it out. We can't have it as a fringe issue. It is part of overall well-being. So that's a real win just that we're talking about.
0: Mm. Is there anything that you'd like to see in the bill that's not in there yet that perhaps you're hoping lawmakers will get to, or maybe you've sent a few little emails or little memos to folks saying, hey, let's not, Let's make sure we can get this in there if possible?
3: So uh, this is a a big comprehensive bill that uh, has a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And we're excited to be a part of the process. And we're already in conversation with many interested lawmakers. One other fascinating element just over the last two years is how many we've had some champions who've been with us for quite some time for a decade of saying, how can we do better? We have some new uh, newly interested lawmakers and they're all coming and saying, I'm talking to my constituents. Here's what I'm hearing. What do you all think? So what I anticipate we're going to continue to be a part of the conversation as this bill continues to evolve and morph over the coming weeks.
0: The voice you hear is Judy Fitzgerald, head of the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. And we're talking about not only legislation that will improve access for folks, but also treatment. You know, Georgia commissioner has been ranked as one of the worst states in the country for access to mental health care. As a commissioner of this department, I know that's not something you you like to hear, but what can this bill do to change that?
3: So again, it's doing the most important thing already, which is we're having a conversation. I also think, I I wanna remind folks how far we've come because many people are familiar with the fact that in 2010, the state of Georgia signed a settlement agreement with the Department of Justice Mm -hmm. and the state acknowledged that we were over-reliant on hospital-based care. Over the course of several years, we closed two hospitals and we invested hundreds of millions of dollars in community-based care. And what you see as a result of that is really important to note. The first is we have a really comprehensive and robust crisis response system, one of the best in the country. And and, and another thing I wanna mention that we built as a result of the community investments has been um, a housing voucher program Mm -hmm. for people with mental illness who need housing And a third thing I'm gonna mention um, is our APEX school-based mental health program. That's enabled students to receive services in their school setting, meet the students where they are. Each of those have been ways we've spent community dollars that are having impact. So now here comes the bill that says, we can do better and we can do more. So we're excited to build on what's already been built.
0: What I noticed with a lot of the commissioners like yourself when you all spoke with state lawmakers, and I know Commissioner Gary Black talked about this, that is retention. You talked about this in your budget presentations. You all lost more than 1,000 employees from January 2020 to this year. Is that due to maybe folks being part of the great resignation, burnout, not in terms of being comparable with other states in the the same positions, in terms of compensation and salary? Through your lens, why do you think this happened? That's a lot of folks, a thousand people.
3: Yeah, so I'm glad we're talking workforce. It is a vital part of this conversation. And to be clear, we had uh, experienced workforce shortages before the pandemic, but that pandemic absolutely accelerated. Uh, the challenges that we're facing. And really, folks in healthcare and, and folks working in mental health are working in healthcare. They are we're at the front lines, right? Coming into our hospital system, uh, putting themselves and their families at risk, in many cases, doing really difficult jobs. And uh, so we experienced those losses, but we think there's opportunity here. And I, I do want to say a word. Uh, about uh, Governor Kemp, because uh, yeah, you all are, everybody's well aware now of Governor Kemp's investment of $5,000 $5, support for state employees. Mm-hmm. I can't say enough about how important I believe this is going to be for retention of current staff. And uh, there, there's hope and anticipation that a, an initial payment of that will be made in the in the amended budget. And it's an opportunity for the state to uh, value and show, th- show that those those state employees are valued for the contributions that they make.
0: Commissioner, any idea, can you give our listeners, are we talking about social workers? Are we talking about administrative support staff? Is there one area where you saw a high percentage of folks that left the agency? So it's all across the board, Rose, in terms
3: of departure. And, and think about any hospital setting, right? You have everything from Uh, doctors, psychiatrists, nurses, clinical social workers, as you say, but equally important are the frontline staff who are interacting with patients on an hourly basis, as well as cafeteria workers, maintenance. It takes all of those folks to deliver quality care. And so investments that we can make. So that retention, uh, that that first Mm $5,000, we think that's critical for retention of current staff. But we're equally interested in talking about what about the pipeline for the future. And we're excited because we think the bill is going to open up that conversation as well.
0: Your agency also administers two different programs that provide much needed services for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, the Do Options Waiver Program and the Comprehensive Supports Waiver Program waivers. But Commissioner Fitzgerald, you all have more than 7,000 Georgians waiting for spots in these programs, how are you all, what's the update on this? What is your agency doing to provide access to people who are waiting?
3: Yeah. So um, let me lay it out. So folks understand currently we serve over 13,000 people on those waivers Mm -hmm. and the list that you reference um, our planning list. And we call it a planning list Rose, because not everyone on that list needs services right now. What's important to us, we are trying to serve as many Georgians as possible and particularly prioritize those at the highest level of need. So at the top of the list are people at the greatest need. I do have to say our provider network has been especially stretched during the pandemic. So we put all our uh, temporary funding efforts um, and our focus really over the last two years has been How do we preserve the providers we have? How do they preserve the staff that they have? And we want to bring new people into those waiver services only when the providers are ready and say we can serve them. Again, I think the conversation is being lifted about how do we really get to those in
0: need? Do you feel confident that if that is solely based on what the providers say that that is accurate? I mean, someone listening may say, well, you know, without, no, Obviously, you can't know firsthand all the, the, the optics around everyone's individual case, but I can understand someone listening saying, well, can we trust the provider? Not that they would intentionally say something that's not true, but, you know, can you understand a listener being saying, well, is there another way then to determine who's going to be at the top of the list and maybe who will get services later and can, in a sense, for lack of better words, afford to wait?
3: Yeah, so I I understand that question, and I want to just affirm uh, one. We have a remarkable provider community. We are in contact with providers. We have um, extensive oversight of that provider community. They're experiencing the same workforce shortages and at the front line. In some cases, their workforce shortages are just as challenging as our hospital frontline workforce shortages. In my experience, in many years in Georgia, the providers doing this work are vital members of their community, and they are eager to serve. They want to serve people, but they also want to assure that they can do it with the quality that they are asked to deliver.
0: And as we begin to wrap up, I do want to get this in because I have a listener that sent in a question, and the question is about, you know, after hours emergency access What are you hearing from providers? Obviously, I know you may hear from folks saying this is also something that needs to be revamped or modified. Is there anything that your agency can do in terms of that?
3: Yeah, so I'm happy to say one of the things Georgia is most proud of is our Georgia Crisis and Access Line. And this is 24-7, every day of the year, connection to a qualified professional who, who wants to know what the issue is and then absolutely is prepared in some cases to dispatch mobile help if needed, but more importantly, to connect with ongoing resources. So that is, Georgia is unique in having that resource available every hour of the day, every day of the year. That's the level of commitment that, uh, that and part of what our community funding has built year over year.
0: And finally, I've asked everyone this question, I've been asking it for the last two years, where do you hope we are not only in Georgia, but as a nation, Maybe six months, maybe a year from now, in terms of how we're dealing with this pandemic.
3: Yeah, so since mental health has been seen as such a part of it, now you hear this conversation that it's the year of mental health. What my hope, Rose, is that this is the beginning of an era for mental health, that we're not going backwards. Mental health is no longer a fringe, that when we're talking about overall health and well being, wherever we're talking about it, everybody's understanding that mental health is a part of that i think i think we're getting there
0: all right judy fitzgerald is head of the georgia department of behavioral health and developmental disabilities commissioner fitzgerald thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it we will have all the information that you gave us on our website for folks who need additional services or know of someone who needs of services definitely to check that out thank you so much commissioner i really appreciate it
3: thanks rose appreciate the opportunity
0: And you're listening to Closer Look, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. For the first time in its 100-plus year history, the American Red Cross has declared a national blood crisis. And yes, it's due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, which has driven down blood donations, leading to the worst shortage in over a decade. And in recent weeks, the Red Cross said it has less than a one-day supply of some blood types on hand, we'll talk about more. we'll talk about that in just a moment. Joining me now to discuss this is Dr. Baya Lasky. She's medical director for the American Red Cross of Georgia. Dr. Lasky, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Good afternoon, Rose. Thanks for having me. As listeners hear, the Red Cross has had less than a one-day supply of some blood types. That's got to be alarming.
4: Yes. This is really a critical situation. Uh, we are very concerned about the blood supply. This is really unique in uh, where we're at. This is uh, the lowest we've been in a decade. And relative to the demand now, this is really the worst that we've ever seen.
0: Hmm. Dr. Lasky, as we know because of the pandemic, Red Cross centers were impacted. Give our listeners an update now in terms of the centers. Folks can make appointments to come in. How, how are you all coping still with we all are in terms of protocols and procedures and all of that.
4: Right, but this is definitely still due to the ongoing restrictions related to the pandemic. Uh, We have had a loss of about 10% of our donor base uh, since the onset of the pandemic, which has really been just compounded um, over the last two years. Uh, High school and college campuses uh, have uh, been closed um, and have resulted in a loss of about 64% of, of blood from those locations and we are continuing to be challenged with the current COVID surge uh, as well as on our donors, as well as on our staffing. Uh, So we are encouraging people to make appointments. Uh, People can go to our website, redcrossblood.org or our Red Cross Blood donor app to, uh, they can type in their zip code and find either mobile drives or our donor centers. And we are encouraging people to make appointments. Um, It does help to manage the flow of people to avoid crowding. Uh, And it also helps us to direct our staff uh, appropriately so that that we can pair our limited staffing right now with where our donors are going to turn out. And regarding safety, we have been uh, in line with the CDC guidelines regarding social distancing. Uh, we have universal masking protocols and we do screen our staff and donors uh, for any symptoms of COVID. Um, donors have to be recovered for 10 days uh, in order to come into our, our donor centers. Uh, and so we continue to uh, be, be in line with the CDC to create the most uh, safe environment for our donors.
0: Here in Georgia, Dr. Lasky, what blood type is heavily needed?
4: We need all blood types, but type O positive and O negative are in the greatest demand. O negative is considered universal and O positive is nearly universal. And as you mentioned, we are at sometimes a half day supply uh, of, our, of our most needed blood types. And really this is uh, forcing physicians at the hospital level to make some really difficult decisions about who is getting the blood.
0: Hmm. What have you heard? from I mean can you share you don't have to mention names or can you share some stories
4: Sure, you know, the the types of patients that require blood transfusions are broad from trauma patients, which might be a triple car crash on the freeway, um, you know, a a sporting accident or, uh, you know, from a violent crime, uh, burn patients, uh, women in labor and delivery who have a sudden obstetric hemorrhage. You know, these might be otherwise young, healthy women that that go into labor and have severe hemorrhage suddenly. patients undergoing liver transplants, cardiac surgeries, premature babies, and uh, patients with blood disorders such as sickle cell disease. Uh, So all of these patients, for uh, cancer patients, I didn't mention that, uh, for these types of patients, blood is a life-saving therapy, and blood cannot be manufactured, and it cannot be stockpiled and so it's been a really a challenge for us for this length of time to be challenged you know we we periodically will will send out uh you know an appeal for 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 donors to come out for a blood shortage but this has been ongoing for two years now and we are now seeing like i said the the surge in covid cases as well as now the winter weather uh, the the last storm that the the Midwest and and Northeast saw last, last, well, even we got a little bit of snow in Georgia, even, Mm -hmm. um, that impacted us by an additional 10,000 units, which Mm -hmm. is, just dire in mm. when when we're already at this low level And um, so it's it's having a huge impact and and so yeah you know there are hospitals that are reaching out please send us more blood please send us more blood and we're really having to make some tough decisions um you know for for the women in in labor and delivery for that patient who's been on the transplant list for uh months and who now has a liver and they need blood right now. How
0: do you make that decision, Dr. Lasky?
4: How do y'all make that decision? They're tough decisions. Um, And it's really the Red Cross Medical Office is working with our community partners at the hospital uh, to provide guidance. There's a lot of conversations at the hospital level with how to triage blood, and um, there may be canceled surgeries uh, They're, you know, maybe changing their protocols for how to manage patients who require blood to get them maybe to another, you know, can they wait a day? Um, but, you know, for, for patients, I have heard about patients with sickle cell disease who are sitting in the hospital in the middle of a sickle cell crisis who are waiting for blood. Uh, so this is dire. This is really,
0: really dire. You don't set policies regarding who can give blood, but we know here in the U.S. there are donor restrictions, and especially for sexually active gay and bisexual men. Now, the provision is men who have sex with men must abstain from same-sex sexual activity for 90 days. It used to be a year, I believe, and that was right. changed because of the pandemic. And this is through your personal viewpoint. Would it be helpful mm-hmm. if even that 90 days restriction was reduced even more since we have this this blood donation crisis in, in the country? Well, that's a good question.
4: You know, I I don't know what the data... We don't have any data regarding how that would increase. Of course, the Red Cross does uh, you know, look forward to a more inclusive environment, and we actually, the Red Cross, in partnership with Vitalent and Wenblood, uh, are uh, involved in a, a study right now called advancedstudy.org, is the website where people can uh, find out more information, uh, that is looking to move towards a, an individual risk-based assessment rather than the current time based deferral. And so we are actually, we, uh, Atlanta is one of the study sites. So mm-hmm. I would encourage uh, men who have sex with men, uh, if, if you might be interested in participating, this would really help to, uh, to move the study along and see these changes at the FDA level.
0: And Dr. Lasky, as we wrap up, what are the potential outcomes if blood donations continue to stay stagnant or even decline even further?
4: patient care will be impacted. It has already been impacted and it may be continued to be impacted. And I would really encourage people about 40% of the population is eligible to donate and only about 4% are. So we have a a big gap. There are a lot of people that that could come out and donate. And please, please remember the people that are in the hospital, they're depending on you.
0: You said we know there are 40% of people who are eligible, but only 4%. Give? Correct. Hmm. Dr. Bialaski, medical director for the American Red Cross of Georgia. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We'll have a link to the Red Cross of Georgia on our website. Thank you so much, Thank Dr. Lasky. You. Thanks so much. And Closer Look rolls on here on 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Last month, we talked about a groundbreaking $13 million guaranteed income program supporting black women throughout Georgia. It was called the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund, or GROW. And this funding model under the title In Her Hands would also specifically focus on black women in certain Atlanta neighborhoods with an average of $850 monthly for two years. And here's a little bit of what Executive Director Hope Willensack told us. This largely came as
4: a a recommendation from the Old Fourth Board Economic Security Task Force. When we began this work, we really were looking into the root causes of economic insecurity. And of course, it's pervasive, felt across many groups, not only in Atlanta, Metro Atlanta, but across the country. Metro Atlanta has, has the The lowest economic mobility of any city in the country, some of the most entrenched inequalities. some of the most entrenched poverty rates. Mm -hmm. And yet, even among that, we saw that black women were, Mm -hmm. because of systemically created inequalities, both historic and ongoing policy choices, black women were really facing the brunt of that.
0: Now, before leaving office, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms announced a partnership with the Urban League of Greater Atlanta. It's called IMPACT. Income Mobility Program for Atlanta Community Transformation, and it will focus on low-income Atlanta households. New Mayor Andre Dickens is also supportive of this, and this is Atlanta's first citywide guaranteed income pilot program. Join me now with more, a regular guest to the program, Nancy Flake Johnson. She's present and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Atlanta. Thanks for taking the time. Good to see you again.
1: Good to see you, too, Rose. Thanks for having me
0: on. And before we get into our conversation, I I do want to get your thoughts on on these recent bomb threats being called into several historically black colleges and universities because you know, Nancy, this is beyond alarming. It's it's triggering, given the history of these actions, not just against HBCUs but also houses of worship and, of course, right here in the Atlanta area, the history there. It is
1: yet another Example of just how far apart we are in this nation. Um, it's heartbreaking. I'm, you know, I'm a Howard University alum. Mm-hmm. Um, for any college, for any institution, any home, any sanctuary which should be safe for our city's citizens to be subject to this. Um, I mean, it's it's terrorism mm-hmm. I- at home and it's got to stop. Um, I personally, I personally do not feel safe in this country. Personally, I fear for the future for myself as I move toward, you know, retirement age and, and my children and my grandchildren. Um, I'm, I am encouraged, however, because um, there are People across races and religions, we are pulling in. This is the time to lean in to one another. And uh, we've got to be, though, so the alarm has to be, it's pulled.
0: Mm. These
1: kinds of examples make it clear. If you weren't clear before, please be clear now that um, our nation is under attack from within. Our democracy, our freedom, and our safety.
0: When you talk about leaning in, and this leads into what we're going to talk about, because it's so important. Well, all the work that you've done, your lifelong work, and working with, he- helping folks, meeting folks where they are, helping folks access greater opportunities. This is this is this twenty twenty two. It's a little bit of a surprise for some people that while wow, now Atlanta finally has a, a guaranteed income program, what is it about impact that also maybe convinced you all that this was a good time to partner with? Not just anyone, but City Atlanta. But now to start looking at can these programs, where you're offering low-income households, um, call it stipend or a, a monetary injection, whatever you want to call it, now is the time okay. to start to start a program like this.
1: There couldn't be a better time, Rose. We're still in the thick of COVID, and COVID just exacerbated a problem we already had. Um, your your prior uh, audio from uh, the announcement about the state guaranteed income program, we have been designated now for multiple years as the worst place in the nation. The black mecca now, mm-hmm. the worst place in the nation, number one for business, but the worst place in the nation for income inequality and for economic mobility. It It has to be unacceptable that a child born here, only has a four percent chance of moving out of poverty in their lifetime.
0: This pilot project, you all will serve about three hundred city of Atlanta residents. Now, the I, be, I believe today is the final day for folks to to sign up or or to apply. Yes,
1: today is so we want to reach as many Atlanta citizens who are eligible to put their name in this chat as possible. Uh, to do so, please visit. Our website at www.ulga.coaimpact.org, uh, but also we recognize that a number of our, our citizens are not, you know, tech savvy and need help, and so we've stood up a call center to provide help to people. This they will actually help people fill out the information, and that phone number is 404. 404- 316600. 0
0: 0. And and we'll so say this number again. That. Yeah, we'll say this number again Please. 404-631-6600. And then for some folks, they may be tech savvy, they just don't have access to the internet to do this. So break this down for our listeners in terms of who who would be eligible to participate in this guaranteed income program.
1: So, any city of Atlanta resident, that's number 1. And we have um, uh, between our call center and the actual site, you just put in your address and it'll tell you if you are in the legal boundaries of the city of Atlanta. Because we know some of the peripheral communities have Atlanta addresses, mm-hmm. but they're not technically inside incorporated Atlanta. So that's number one. The second test is around household income. Mm-hmm. And so and it's based on the federal guidelines, which just changed in uh, January.
0: The federal poverty guidelines you're talking about?
1: Federal poverty guidelines, correct. And uh, to give you an example, for a family of four, um, the uh, household income is around $55,000 a year, which, um, so that means you could have, uh, you know, two parents, two children, or a single parent with three kids. Anything that dollar amount or below qualifies you for the program. And that's it. It's just that simple. Is there
0: age restrictions, age requirements?
1: Just an adult, 18 and over, and that's all there is.
0: And so, Nancy, how this will work once folks all have been identified and they are in the program, they will receive, how much will they receive a month? And then how will will you... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I wanted to follow up with how will you all be able to... I don't want to say keep track of that, but, you know, you need to have data from these households in order to either get more funding or to see how effective all this is working.
1: You hit it right on the head. This is really uh, a research project, and we're making that clear to all the families that are selected. They will be issued a small device that they can uh, they will be asked to share each month how they spent the dollars. It is uh, no strings attached. They're, they can use the money for anything they want. But the research that's been done in this space to this point has shown overwhelmingly that families make decisions that improve their financial and economic status for the long term with these dollars. Now, you know, I heard the state program, i really excited about that equally because it Two years, mm-hmm. it's more months, um, you know. But all the cities are doing different models, you know. Los Angeles, mm-hmm. where you know cost of living is higher, a thousand dollars a month for one year. We're five hundred dollars a month for twelve consecutive months. And so, you know, at this time when so many people are still struggling with, you know, coming off of COVID. They can, I'm sure, use it for housing, if nothing
0: else. And we should be clear, because the state program that we've profiled last month, which was the GROW, was focusing on black women. This is focusing right. on anyone who, is, who fits in within the guidelines of this program.
1: Any low-to-moderate income families that meets those guidelines, on the configuration of the household doesn't matter. Uh, so that is one of the distinctions um, that we have also translated the application into multiple languages. So you can access it in Spanish, um, uh, you can access it in French, and I believe it's Vietnamese. And we have counselors that are bilingual who are also available.
0: Ness, let me ask you, what do you think people often get wrong or the misconceptions about how these guaranteed income programs work?
1: I think, and and it was an education for me. Uh, I think some people will view them uh, as traditional, quote, welfare programs. Um, But what's great about guaranteed income, um, you know, once you hit the threshold, um, you get these dollars even when you're working, whereas welfare was kind of more relegated to you had to not be working to Mm -hmm. get it. But this is for people who are working who can then build on top of what they have to advance goals and objectives that they have for themselves and their family. Now, the other important thing and why Urban League was so honored to be chosen, and this directly aligns with our economic mobility framework and philosophy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all about increasing household income to exceed basic need expenses so you have something left over to begin to build wealth. Saving, Mm -hmm. reducing debt, purchasing a home, starting a business.
0: And what do you say to someone who's listening saying, well, Nancy Flake Johnson, you mean to tell me just an extra little $500 a month could really put someone on the path to upward mobility, economic mobility, and start building on generational wealth, wealth for that household?
1: And think about it. If Um, There's so many directions that a person could go with it, but if someone chooses, they could use those dollars to purchase a car, for example, Mm -hmm. maybe a used car, and um, they currently don't have transportation, which limits their access to viable jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, the housing that's most affordable is typically the furthest away from job centers, Mm -hmm. and that's so unfair with the, you know, infrastructure of the, of the city and the way we operate. Someone could use it to pay for child care so they could go back to school, earn a higher credential, become a, a an auto mechanic in a year's time, become a lab technician from a CNA. That increase can mm-hmm. make all the difference toward a livable wage. And let's face it, here in the state, you know, our minimum is just $5.00. And fifteen cents. This is what our state legislature thinks is a legitimate minimum wage in this time. But the real question is, what's the livable hourly wage? And it's really thirty-two dollars an hour now. If what? we don't move people toward that, they'll never be able to build wealth
0: What's the response been like so far?
1: Oh, oh just incredible! Uh, on our wait list, we had six thousand people who've all been informed that, you know, this is the three hundred slot. And we know the need is even deeper and much deeper and greater.
0: Did you say 6,000?
1: Oh, yeah, 6,000 on the waiting list. And we so far, the last report I saw, we had over 2,200 individuals complete the survey. We've had some people start it but not complete it, but we're reaching back out to them to try to help them get through the process.
0: What does that say to you? About the need for programs like this, or additional—we we now we call them wraparound services for communities. Rose,
1: I was all the way there pre-pandemic. Now, with the added work, Urban League has added with our emergency financial assistance. When I tell you the stories, God put it on the the, the 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 way we work that my. Urban League cell phone number has has been distributed somehow through many of these channels. So I get direct calls every single day. I'm hearing what people are saying. And these are, uh, so many of them are people working. But a woman just called me this just an hour ago who's working. She just got back to work. She had health challenges. But her water is off and her lights and gas got cut off this morning. And she was in tears. Can you help me get myself? I just need to get even bored. I can take it from here. So we have got to do things like guaranteed income. We've got to do more emergency financial assistance. And please reject the concept, people don't want to work. It is a falsehood. People want to work. But to get there, they have to have child care. They have to have transportation. They have to have uh, full-time jobs that are actually full-time. We're t- many of the people i talked to, they're working temp jobs. They're on and off,
0: mm-hmm.
1: no consistent income. Um, transportation, they have to... One gentleman was walking 90 minutes each way for a $13 an hour job. So the problem is we're not providing the support that COVID really blew out of the water Many child care centers never reopen Mm -hmm. preschool and after school care is not at pre pandemic level to work. Even if your child goes to school from eight to three, how do you work an eight hour job with transportation to get there and get off work in time to pick your kids up?
0: Nancy, I want to go back to the woman you spoke with. Are you all able, are you going to be able to help her?
1: Yes, we will. But she also is behind in her mortgage, and that's the second thing we'll Mm. have to tackle. And I'm nervous about that. Mm. Uh, We don't have uh, specific resources from Fulton County at this
0: time. Mm. Nancy Flake Johnson, president and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Atlanta, talking about the Guaranteed Income Program, Atlanta's first citywide program, Nancy, thank you so much for taking time. We really appreciate it. Let's stay in touch. Let's make sure we bring you back and and see how folks are doing. Do that.
1: Thank you. And please share that number widely throughout the
0: day. Absolutely. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our other producers. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And as always, if you missed this program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. We'll have links to all the, the conversations you heard today. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.